It's fundraising time for DJ Grandpa's Crib. Our Kickstarter is now live. Check out our project, search words, DJ Grandpa. We have rewards starting at just $1, and we sure could use your help. Welcome to DJ Grandpa's Crib, the podcast of Kickstarter, the crowdfunding website. Each week, I interview real people with honest dreams. Today is Monday, December 16th, 2013. During this week in history, in 1968, the musical film Chitty Chitty Bang Bang opened in New York City. The movie is based on a book by Ian Fleming, the only book he wrote that didn't feature my man, James Bond. Bang, bang, chitty, chitty, bang, bang, I'll find more than the friend. Bang, bang, chitty, chitty, bang, bang, I'll find more than the Hello everyone, welcome to my shop. My name is Jerem Rush, I'm an artist blacksmith and I specialize in making handmade items of beauty for you to take home. How do I pronounce your whole name just for the cameras and everything so I get it right? Jerem Moroni Rush. That's a strong name, man. You'd have to be some like some sort of blacksmith or or superhero or something like that with a name like that, man. Thank you. I appreciate that. I like my name. Yeah, because sometimes when your parents name you a certain way, there's only two paths for you, man. <laughs> you know, there's, there's only <laughs> two ways to go, man, when you have a name like that. I, I know, you know, I know. But you're going to be super hot or, or a dud. And you don't want to be a dud, so you got to strive. That is true. Anyway, enough armchair psychology welcome to dj grandpa's crib and you're on kickstarter jerem rush artist blacksmith hand forged beauty wow that is right that's a lofty title man i work hard to get it done (laughs) (laughs) you're working hard for the money i understand man you're not even really asking for that much money on kickstarter you know you're almost microfinancing Now, why do you need this amount of money, though? Well, I'm, I'm headed out to get trained one-on-one with a master smith, right. and I have put pretty much everything I've got into it, and I'm still short a little bit. Total bill is going to be around $3,500 right. for this trip um, and that training. And as you can see, I'm only asking for about $750. i am putting my own skin in the game for sure. You don't have long left on Kickstarter. You only have about a week by the time this podcast comes out, so... I checked out your video and you have some beautiful pieces there. Now, I'm starting to believe while talking to you right now that if I were a blacksmith, I would believe that each and every blacksmith has his own sort of style. And he could tell another person's style maybe like a mile away. Yes. What typifies your style? Like if I had to, you know, check out the crime scene and I'm like, hmm, these were made by Jaron. Uh, you will see that anywhere I've got something round, like on the stems of my leaves, something like that, right. I spend a lot of time making sure I get those very round. The metal begins to take on almost a look of a clay, and it looks soft. And anytime you can make metal look soft, it becomes very impressive. People really like that. It looks very professional. So that's one of my one of my hallmarks. If you see some of my pieces in it, it looks soft. Uh, how long have you been blacksmithing, if that's even a word? Uh, it is a word, and I have not been blacksmithing very long. I've only been at it about a year, uh, but I've already opened up the school, and I've been training people. And let me tell you what, you want to learn something, you start teaching it. <laughs> you can learn fast. I'm like, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> you've been doing this a year, and you've already have pupil that's like the blind leading the blind if i don't mean to insult you or anything but i'm no, just saying no. you're all right man you're all right so you're going by pure passion alone then if you're leading these people you know you're leading your flock through the with you i have to use analogies this whole interview if you're leading your flock through the desert so that they may drink again one day you you must be going by pure passion you know, I am going by passion, but I don't try to teach them anything too complicated. Uh, that's why I'm going out to get this training. It's a, it's how to make tools with blacksmithing. Right. And so that's my next series of classes that I'm going to open up. I'm going to go get this training, and all my students know when I come back, you know, what we're going to be learning is tool making next. 
they're excited. They're asking me, when when, are we, when can we come back and learn this next stuff? I said, well, as soon as I get back from Mississippi, I'll teach you. Your students, how old are they approximately? My youngest is 11, and my oldest is in his 60s somewhere. How old are you? I am 31. How did you all of a sudden get into blacksmithing? It seems like it must be like one of those family traits, like being a policeman or a fire person or, you know. Yeah, you know, it's kind of a, an odd story. I've always been a little bit interested, you know, see some guys doing it. I'm like, wow, that's neat. But I saw my brother-in-law posted some pictures on Facebook of a forge that he built. And I thought, well, I could build that. Now, keep in mind, I never built anything in my life. I barely hammered nails. You know, <laughs> I'm just not that kind of a person. Um, but I said, hey, I can do that. And so I built it. And I was surprised. And so, well, I got one now. I might as well put a fire in there. And so I did that. Uh, I wonder if it'll heat up metal like it's supposed to. And so I tried that out. And, you know, one thing led to another. And next thing I know, I'm I'm teaching people how to do this. And they're paying me money. And that, that works out just fine for me. So hmm. you took it as a challenge, a Facebook challenge. Your brother built a forge for for no apparent reason. So then you did one. And then you go, Correct. oh, honey, I wonder, does it work? Oh, try it out, dear. <laughs> and then you, you you start grabbing spoons and all sorts of things out of the house and start melting them down. And, <laughs> and it works. <laughs> it did work. <laughs> I ruined several things before I started thinking. <laughs> right. And you had never fixed anything in your life. Uh-uh. And you call yourself an artist, Blacks? You you are bold, man. You are bold. Yes, I am. Right. That's not a question. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. It's just it's just amazing the path that you have. To, well, it goes back to the name again. Say it mm-hmm. for me one more time. The whole name, please. Jerem Moroni Rush. That is a wild story, man, and that is super cool. And now you're part of the maker community, and you've never made anything in your life. Nope. Wow, <laughs> so you must be growing exponentially. I mean, your, your, your abilities and, and all this sort of stuff. It really has been a journey of self, you know, to learn who I am. I've never been an artist before either. I've never drawn a picture that anybody liked. I've never been interested in paint or sculpture or anything. But I picked up a hammer. And I started hitting some metal with some fire behind it, and that just felt good. And so I started moving forward with that, and it's been working great. I love what I do. And it wasn't suggested to you by a psychiatrist or psychologist for an anger management program or anything like that? <laughs> no, but it, it does help your anger management, I tell you that. <laughs> Man, you said a hammer with fire behind it. That, that's yeah. marketing right there, man. You, you have another gift. let's say i'm interested in you on kickstarter you know i'm going through this page wow i don't really see many blacksmiths only on television and and western movies so what do you do i mean how do you fund what are you offering people what's super cool (laughs) everybody likes knives (laughs) (laughs) that's always the violent stuff mostly what i'm interested in though things that uh come out of nature Right. And you got those leaves. I also make roses, which are real pretty. There's uh, the calla lilies, other different kinds of flowers and leaves. You know, you put them on stems and you start welding all that stuff together. And you can make little, little trees and and just just pretty things. You know, people see it and they just they feel enlightened just by looking at the work. And to own a piece of that, you know, when people purchase those things from me, something that feels good and you know it'll last too. It's made of metal. It's not gonna break. <laughs> You're an industrious cat again. You're going to have to say your whole name again for me, man. Jerem Moroni Rush. Now, tell us some of the stuff that's on your Kickstarter page, man, that people might want to back you for. I make, uh, you know, a few things that are, are useful around the house, like coat hooks, things like that. Those are made out of steel. I also, like I said, do things with nature, leaves and flowers. Now, what's great about those, I can make them out of steel or I can make them out of copper. Right. And when you make them out of copper, they, they get very pretty. You can brush them up and they just shine like a kind of like a brand new penny, but it looks way better than that because it's, it's just something that will connect you with our Mother Earth. Right. So I got those kinds of things. I also do some jewelry, some rings, some bracelets, and I can make men's styles or women's styles. Right. It's good for everybody. And there's always a variation. You know, I can take a leaf and uh, make a long stem and put another leaf on the other side. 
kind of twist those together. And that's something that most blacksmiths don't even know how to do. Just a cool little thing that I found that I really like. Right. Little animals. I got a scorpion on there on my page. I see. A, a little fun deal. Yeah, but you've never done anything in your life. I mean, where, where's uh, all the, no, what's this well of, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what in your life has changed when you saw that Facebook picture and you started down this whole path. I mean, were you ignoring your destiny of your whole name and stuff like that? I'll tell you, like I told my wife when I, when I just started seeing this, right? I had, I had this feeling. I said, if I can forge metal, I can forge myself. And that has really changed me as I've just been working on learning how to make these things. I really have grown. If my wife were here, I'd put her on the phone. <laughs> She'd let you know. <laughs> Over these last few months, I'm a different person. And it's not just my, my strong arm now that she really likes. She loves my blacksmith arm. But <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. And you have, like, the hair and stuff like that. So I, see, I can see the blacksmith and look working for you. Right. Now all you need is, like, an Indiana Jones-type hat. Oh, my God, man. <laughs> <laughs> I got a leather apron that's pretty nice. <laughs> hey, Fred, you, you sure know how to market yourself, man. I like that, man. You're industrious. I know you don't know me at all, man. From I guess they would say from Adam, but I'm happy for you, man, and, I, and I'm proud of you. And I hear you have the little one in the background while you're trying to do videos and stuff, so I understand yeah. that, too. Um, so I wish you and your family the best on Kickstarter and the best during this holiday season. You're out of Utah, Jerem Rush. Artist blacksmith, yes. hand forged beauty, and he has a great Thor's arm. <laughs> I'd imagine. <laughs> so go to Kickstarter.com, check out his page. Uh, Jaron is spelled J A R O N Rush, R U S H, like the heavy metal band itself, Rush. And if you can't find it there, always go to DJGrandpa.com where we will post links for this amazing up-and-coming blacksmith of the arts and i think that's it dude jaren and thanks for coming on the show thank you much every 113 years the gorgon's head comet appears in our sky triggering the return of an ancient and magical dream that materializes in an unknown earthly location, this time on an uncharted island somewhere in the center of the Bermuda Triangle. Secret societies, religious leaders, and hot game on Kickstarter. Secrets of the Lost Tomb. That's right. By everything Epic Games. You got it. That is an ominous video, man. Whoever wrote the copy for that, man, it, it seemed like it could not end. It seemed like a climactic ending, I guess. It just all led up to the actual title of the game, and that felt like someone who just knew somehow the mastery of the word. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I actually have uh, some experience in uh, screenwriting, as well as a teacher as well. I'm, I'm actually uh, a reading specialist. Uh, I have right. my master's in teaching English. I uh, teach special ed students full-time in a uh, private school. For behavioral students, and I uh, do writing and uh, board game design and play board games, of course. And so we really wanted to give it that cinematic feel to really show people that it's an immersive experience and a thematic experience. You know that you really can can feel in your stomach, you know, in your gut. Hey, and I can say that about your video, man. It was like it was a cross between like Stargate and and Indiana Jones and. <laughs> All of this sort of Star Wars or something, and I was like, dude, how much mythology is this guy going to wrap into one game? It basically was inspired by some other great board games out there that uh, really we really loved. And we kind of said, you know, we could make something of our own and, and really uh, use the stories and, and use the inspirations that we have and put it into something for us, you know, and for the fans that we could have and people that really love it. So Secrets of the Lost Tomb is really that pulp action adventure game where basically a bunch of characters and these characters are really in-depth. They all have their own personal background stories. They're all a part of this secret group, this society 
called the Eternal Order of Perseus. And right. this group is kind of like a cross between the Men in Black and uh, kind of uh, an Indiana Jones librarian. I don't know if you've ever seen the librarian movie series or maybe Warehouse 13. Oh, yeah, yeah. I started watching that for a while. They protect ancient artifacts. They make sure that regular everyday people don't get involved with monsters or magic uh, or the supernatural. They make sure to really kind of keep that separate. And they've kind of been doing that for thousands of years since the ancient Greeks. And basically, the secret society has been always pitted against their archenemy, the Brotherhood of the Dracus, which leads back all the way to when Medusa, the wonderful snake-haired uh, evil lady. Jason Argonauts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and Perseus himself, who lobbed her head off and created a three-tailed comet that basically comes back every 113 years, which brings these uh, mysterious uh, relics and, and basically this vault where all of these, these cultures and religions have stowed away all of their things inside of this tomb, uh, which uh, really can, uh, can fester and, uh, and, and really royal inside there. And eventually, uh, the things have to overflow out into the earth. Uh, so uh, our adventurers have to go into this tomb on various different adventures and uh, scenario scripts, we call them. And they're all little mini, almost like mini movies that players can choose from a bunch of different difficulty levels because some players, they love to have that really hard challenge. Right. Whereas other players just kind of want to play casually and, and pick up the game and sit down with their friends and not have to feel like uh, they're going to die any second. But uh, some players really want that. So we give that versatility of being able to choose and have lots of options for the gamer to do what they want to do in the tomb. You know, they, they have a set of objectives. And they, they have things they need to do, but they also, if they want, they can go off and explore a different room or kind of go a different direction. But it is a cooperative game. So all of the players work together as a group to pit themselves against the game itself. The game has its own AI, right. artificial intelligence, that basically is part of this tomb phase. And the tomb kind of gets its own turn. And the players kind of move all of the monsters and do all that stuff. And then they basically can take their actions again. But from all you told me, this must be like the most exciting game in the world or something. Um, now for the underhanded question, is this game any fun now? You've told me, and it sounds mysterious and intriguing, climactic, action from one roll of the dice to another. But is it fun? We call it an experience because when you sit down, uh, you really have the ability to, to strategize with your friends and say, what's the best way we can complete this objective? Or do we want to split up? Or do we want to work together? You know, and really uh, read these story cards aloud with voices and, and just really kind of explore and, and discover things. And basically, every time you move your character, you're going to see a new room. And it's always going to be random every time you play because these we have over 50 tiles in the game, in the base core game. And of course, there's a bunch more on the Kickstarter uh, that we have a, a ton of other content uh, that we're releasing um, for Kickstarter especially. But these tiles, they really make it so interesting and engaging where the turns just kind of go so quickly that the, the players, they get their turn, the next player gets their turn, and then nobody's sitting there drooling, you know, and, and, and saying, oh, when's my turn going to come up? Because everybody's turn has something cool and interesting that's going to happen. Every time you explore a new room, you get a story card. And these are really cool because they're an adventure and potentially could be a misadventure, we call them, where basically each room has a different kind of a difficulty level. So when you walk into one room, it could be good and all honky-dory and, and you could find something cool or, or have a nice outcome to you. But other rooms, they could be traps or they could potentially be some really evil monster lurking inside. So everybody gets to read these cards aloud and, and you listen to the stories as they, as they develop. And every time we've play-tested the game or demoed the game, it gives me chills and goosebumps. When I see players engaged and really doing voices and cringing at seeing monsters pop out, and you know, uh, or they pick up a room tile and they just can't stop looking at, right. at how cool certain things are. I just love that. And, you know, of course, bias, I, I love the game. Uh, I think it's I fun as, as anything, but... When I see players play the game, it really gives me that that feeling like this is something that people are having fun with, you know? 
<laughs> you know, I haven't played the game, and you're making me have a lot of fun. That's all I can say. <laughs> you said you had a lot of talents, maybe before the tape rolled or right at the beginning of the interview, you know, talking about how you have a lot of talents. Oh, yes, you do have a lot of talents. <laughs> you, you told no lies there. For anyone out there on Kickstarter, check out Secrets of the Lost Tomb. I'm sold. I mean, I still got to, you know, test it all out, the mechanics and all that. But but I'm just saying, just from a purely presentation, I mean, dude, Chris has done an incredible job. And I wish you and your, uh, your compadres, your hombres, the best on Kickstarter, man. Everybody check this game out. And if you can't find it on Kickstarter, please go to djgrandpa.com. We'll, we will post links for Secrets of the Lost Tomb. Dude, Chris. Thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been a wonderful time. I really appreciate you having me, and uh, it was great talking to you. Up next, I turn over the host position to entertainment guru Ron Greenfield. He interviews me, people. DJ Grandpa. Give it a listen. Hey, how's it going there, Ron? It's going very well, thank you. Oh, that's good, man. The ace entertainment reporter that you are. So how you doing? Oh, terrible, but everything's going okay. The show must always go on. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, go ahead, TJ. I was just going to say, it's hard to interview yourself. Very few people are good at it. You know, I've seen Nina Totenberg of NPR, you know, do two people at one time. But I don't think I could do the back and forth. So I've asked my go-to person on entertainment to help me out with doing my Kickstarter interview because I think it's a touchy subject. And for that reason, we have Ron Greenfeld of AspectEntertainment.com. He's a burgeoning media zeitgeist. I've never used that word okay. before, but I, I, I think it's kind of cool. Ron, thanks, dude. This is my pleasure. You're in the process of building your platform. So just to introduce yourself, how would you describe DJ Grandpa? What are you about? I've been in this business for 35 years, ever since I was 12 years old, meaning the radio business. Started in Bridgeport, Connecticut at WPKN as a tape cutter. And uh, 15 years nearly at NPR, another five at the Washington Post. I've done it all, White House, Congress, all of that. But I didn't have a voice of my own still, and that's what I died for. And so mm -hmm. that's why I created DJ Grandpa's Crib. I'm not one who walks away from controversy. I'm not one who walks away from laughter, meaning that when I mention DJ Grandpa's Crib, it's an idea I had in my back pocket for about two or three years now. Everybody laughed at my face, you know, ha ha, you know, DJ Grandpa, that's the silliest name in the world. And I would say, you have to remember, I market to the alternative. I give people a voice who normally don't have a chance to express their voice. And I see an opportunity in that. I see a profit in that. I see a way to build a platform in that. So getting back to Kickstarter, which is pretty much what we do right now, I not only have done the projects that were like a million dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars, which I don't do many of them. I mainly do the projects that are small people who need a voice, who need a platform, who can't get their word out there as big as the people who have the publicists and the infrastructure. Right. I like to help people build their careers. I like to help people have a chance when they may not have all the assets that they need. And so we kind of team up with them. With the whole concept of crowdfunding and Kickstarter and other things like Indiegogo and other crowdfunding sites, yes, sir. people began to see they had a chance to express their voice, to get their projects out there right. and not go through the traditional mode. Did you see this as an opportunity, you know, where you could be that sort of like go-to person to help those, like you were just saying, to get that project out there. To be honest, at first, like I said, I was looking for a home for DJ Grandpa. It was just this little baby mm -hmm. of an idea. 
Well, Ron, I checked out Kickstarter finally. You know, I had heard so much about it. I checked it out finally. And clicking through the pages, I thought it was the most incredible idea I had ever seen. I wished I was part of it. And I guess at first, I only thought about myself, really. But I woke up one night and I was like, I don't want to do that anymore. I said, all of my colleagues, everybody I work with, I, I view them as corruption. I'm always enabling their ideas, but they never seem to pass it. What do they call it? Kick it forward or something? Pay it forward. Pay pay it, it forward. They never seem to pay it forward. They never seem to give DJ Grandpa a chance. It was always, you have to make us stars because that's what you're good at. You're this, you're that. But whenever it came to my ideas, whenever it came to my dreams, I had a whole lot of people around me, including family, everyone who would gladly just stand on the sidelines and see me fail. And I don't wish to sound negative. That's just how it is in my world. And so when I started DJ Grandpa's Crib and I called it the podcast of Kickstarter, I wanted to help other people who maybe they had that same type of feeling, you know, of people just watching them fail when they could actually do something about it and maybe give them a chance just a leg up to achieve their dreams. Because I noticed in my year producing this cast on Kickstarter, all of our services have been for free. I love to say that, by the way. And <laughs> and we've raised roughly $1 million for nearly 350 project creators on Kickstarter. Because I always have to remember that this is a business. Kickstarter keeps saying that. So now, with that out of the way, most of the people who are on Kickstarter, a lot of them would have never made it the way the world was. You talk about 15 years ago. They would have never made right. it. They would have never stood a chance. So I figured with my platform or my burgeoning platform that I could build something. And it's just in its infancy, I will admit. But there is such potential, and that's why I'm running the Kickstarter season two. But to get back to your question, I wanted to help. And I thought with my years of radio experience, I could help. And I thought with my maybe gift of gab, with me being the consummate promoter, shameless promoter, a lot of times to where sometimes people are like, dude, could you turn that down a little bit? I figured I could help because I love the market. I love to promote. And a lot of things, a lot of times people don't, what they don't see behind the scenes is the person or people or group or entity or company, small company that's on the show, I'm not only putting them on the show for their five to 10 minutes or whatever. I'm giving them marketing plans behind the scenes while they're doing the interview, critiquing their pages and giving them advice. I'm giving them places they could go to to make more money. I'm Twittering for them. I'm Facebooking for them. We almost sign on as a member of your team and we cross promote together. Right. We normally have seven guests on the show per week. And I've learned when all seven of us Facebook, Twitter, and do backer updates on Kickstarter, pretty much everybody on this show gets funded. 100%. Everybody gets funded. And that is amazing. When I listen to your interviews, you're becoming quickly a go-to person for people to understand that, yes, I can have my voice and get it out there. Next week, stay tuned for part two of Ron Greenfield Grills, DJ Grandpa. To find out more about Ron, visit his website at aspectsofentertainment.com. Hello, Nick. Good. Thanks for calling. I always like checking out Nashville. Cool. Yeah, Nashville's good, man. Just got home. Happy to be here. Yeah, I hear you just moved to town not too long ago. Well, I moved to town in, in January. So, yeah, not too long ago. I've been here almost a year. And how do you like it? Where'd you move there from? 
I moved here from Boston. I went to school up at Berkeley College of Music, and then I worked there for a year after graduating. And when I moved down here, I moved to just be part of a different music city and sort of pursue my career as a performer. I spent a lot of time on the road. Um, I played with a few different groups this summer, and now I have a full-time touring gig with Nora Jane Struthers in the party line. I checked out your YouTube channel and I saw you playing with a lot of different people. Yeah. Yeah, it was some nice bluegrass music there. Thanks, man. You're going to do a solo album of your own now on Kickstarter? I'm going to have a band in on some of it, but it's my first record with, you know, of music of my own that I'm putting my name on the front of. You know, I do a lot of work as a side man, and this is going to be my first release under my name. Last night I dreamt that you and I were back so what's your primary instrument? I saw I saw in a couple of videos it seems like you switched around a little bit. So yeah, my primary instrument is guitar. That's what I grew up playing, and that's uh, that's what I went to college for. That's what I really, really, really love to play. When I'm out on the road, I I get a lot of work playing the bass, and right now with Noah James Group, I'm playing mostly the bass and some guitar. But I want to use this record as a, a chance to sort of showcase my guitar playing and really express myself through that instrument. What does this record mean to you? Like I said, it's sort of the first piece of work that I'm doing where I get to be out front and where I'm playing guitar, and I feel like I've reached a point in my playing in my career where I want to have a piece of work that is my own and that I can look back on and see that, you know, when I, when I moved to Nashville and started hitting a good stride, I, I got to go in the studio and showcase some of that work and sort of document it. And I'm getting some of my good friends and some of my favorite musicians to be on it. I'm excited to have them showcased as well. All right, you're going to have to give me a few names, man. You're talking about Nashville's finest. I need to, I need to know who these people are, man. You got it. It's uh, this fellow Christian Settlemeyer. He's playing the fiddle. He's great. He's played with the Green Cards and the Farewell Drifters, and he plays with a group called Ten String Symphony now. On the banjo is going to be Kyle Tuttle, and Kyle and I met at college, and we hit it off immediately, and we've been playing in groups and traveling together for the past five years or so. Mm-hmm. We get along and play together real well, so I'm excited to have him be a part of it. And then Ashley Cottle is going to be playing the bass. She's a great bass player. She also went to Berkeley, but she went a little before I went, I met her down here in Nashville. And Ashley is also a great singer and songwriter. And then um, having my buddy from Michigan come down and play the dobro, his name is Mark Lavengood. And he plays with the group called Lindsay Moon and the Flat Bellies up there. And I did some touring with them this summer, and Mark is an amazing player and I'm just an incredible person to be around. He's got this great energy, really positive attitude. And so I wanted to get him down to be a part of the project. Is this going to be mainly an instrumental bluegrass album, or are you going to be singing on it any? It's about half and half. I got six instrumentals lined up right now that I want to do, and then about five or six songs. A few of them are my own, a few are traditional songs, and um, I might have someone come in, a friend of mine, Rachel Davis, come in and sing a swing song. Do you sing any? Yeah, I'm going to be singing lead on most of the stuff that has vocals. You're going to do Tom Dooley or anything like that? The only traditional song that I want to do is a Flat and Scrub song called If I Should Wander Back Tonight. Do you have any expectations for this album? Like you think it's going to do X, Y, Z? I want it to be an album that comes out of, you know, a young acoustic guitar player. There's not too many young acoustic guitar players out there putting out records like this. And so I want it to, to sort of resonate with that flat picking guitar community and with the bluegrass community. Really what I want is to have a product of my own that I feel really proud of that showcases what I do best. For anyone out there who loves country music, who loves bluegrass music, who loves Nashville, who'd like to hear some of the finest young pickers out there, go to kickstarter.com and check out the debut record with Nashville's finest. Thank you very much for coming on the show, sir. Hey, thanks, DJ Grandpa. Thanks for calling, man. Every day there hangs a cloud over my side of the mountain. The other side is sunny all the time. You know, often people say, you know, oh, that was a great idea. Where'd you get it? And you go, oh, it just popped into my imagination. Well, what if there was a source for that? And what if there was a place that that all starts? <laughs>
But remember, Frank, it is never about me. The story yeah. is always about you. And I checked out your video. Dude, it's super cool. It was almost like you were too cool to talk to me, man. I, I listened to the music. I, I saw all the animation and stuff. It very well done. The Looking Glass Wars slash Hatter M. Very cool, man. Very cool. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. We should tell the people what is The Looking Glass Wars about. The Looking Glass Wars is the story of a little girl, Princess Alice Hart, who's enjoying her seventh birthday when suddenly there's a violent coup led by her evil Aunt Red. Right. Her bodyguard, Hatter Madigan, he whisks her to safety through the Pool of Tears. Now, the legend is the Pool of Tears is a portal from Wonderland to our world, but sadly no one's ever come back. And they get separated, and Alice shoots out of a puddle, and she ends up in Oxford, and she meets this guy, Charles Dodgson, who wants to write a book about her, but he changes it, and even changes his name to Lewis Carroll, and completely betrays her. Out of another puddle, shoots the bodyguard, he ends up in Paris, and he goes on a 13-year quest. Now, the graphic novel tells the story from the bodyguard's point of view in our world for his 13-year quest. The right. novel is when he finds her, reunites with her, and brings her back to Wonderland to fight for her rightful place as the true queen of the queendom of Wonderland. What about you and Kickstarter, though? Does your publisher or... Would your publisher like what you're doing on Kickstarter? I mean, do they turn a blind eye? I am not using a publisher in my new, my series. So here, let, let, I'll tell you exactly how it came down. So my publisher publishes my prose novels. I did the graphic novels through Diamond and started my own publishing company. Right. They were not so keen on helping promote it. And I knew that if I promoted my graphic novel, it would bring readers to the prose novels and I would go to every all the conventions comic book conventions and I discovered at these conventions I was selling more prose novels than graphic novels and shaking hands and and so I really um tried to make a convincing argument to Penguin that you should be at conventions and now all the publishers have a presence at conventions I'm not saying it was me but I know that I had an influence over my publishers and so as I was doing this graphic novel series it's been since 2010 that I've, I've written a prose novel. And when I went to my publisher to talk about my new series, they were lukewarm or lackluster. And I just didn't feel it. And I didn't want to go through it again. And I thought, if I can publish a graphic novel, I can publish a prose novel. And I am interested in crowdfunding, but also, DJ, I'm interested in crowd editing. So what if I write my book, I put it out to all of my fans, and they tell me what they like and don't like, and then I hire an editor, and then I can go to Penguin, and they'll participate, they'll have an influence, and then I have a connection with them, and there's no downside. I write the book, I go on Kickstarter, they help me print it, I send it to them, and I listen. But you're and being controversial again. I mean, that's not always rewarded, I guess. What, what what part of it? What are you talking about? I mean about giving the crowd a chance to edit before Penguin gets a chance to edit. I, I don't see that going over necessarily well. I mean, I see it going over well when you're a success. Hey, you know what? Yeah, you know, I suppose it's sort of risky. But look, at when I hire, when, when Penguin is my editor or Egmont in the UK, right. basically they say, here are our suggestions. They've made the deal with the book. So, yes... If the book didn't turn out, or if I somehow took the wrong advice, but instead of one editor telling me, I'm going to collect these people, and whatever the through line or thought or consideration is, and then I'm the author. The great thing about being the author is I decide if I like it or not. And that's with Penguin, Egmont, my British publisher, or you know my mom, or a fan. It's all the same. It's all voices and people's opinions. And if it makes sense to me, I'll do it. And if it doesn't, I won't. The point is, is that Kickstarter is a platform now. It's not just, it's not so much about raising the money. 
It's not that. It's about the conversation. It's about the connection. It's, hey, what are you guys interested in? My last Kickstarter campaign, everybody said, we want you to write a prose novel. And so I was trying to raise more money and I didn't make it. So I didn't write it right away. But then in this Kickstarter campaign, I said, okay, I've written six chapters. You guys help me raise the money to print it. And I'll do a first edition, special edition, Kickstarter only version of my book. And you'll be the only people who have it. And then I'll publish the Penguin version or whoever my publisher is, because I have no idea if they'll want to do it or not. You may be right. It may be controversial. They'll say, hey, we don't like the sequencing. We don't like the idea. We don't like the writing. We don't like the editing. Who knows? I mean, that's just a roll of the dice. So I've been doing that for a while. How long have you been in the industry? Um, Which industry? In publishing? I mean, yeah, as a pro, at pro level. Well, I published my first book, like I said, in 2004, and then in 2006 here in the States, and I was on the New York Times bestseller list for 21 weeks. And Mm -hmm. at that point, I felt like I was a pro. (laughs) Before that, I produced movies. Well, I produced two movies. There's Something About Mary, which was my biggest hit. You did that? I love that movie, man. And I love the Stiller cat. He was funny, man. He is so funny. You've taken me on quite a wicked tale. (laughs) And for anyone out there, Kickstarter for the holidays, man. The Looking Glass Wars had an M. Frank Better, check him out. Los Angeles, a very cool chess player, I might add. From one mic to another, (laughs) ombre to ombre. (laughs) Well, if you can't find him on Kickstarter, just go to djgrandpa.com and we'll have links there for Frank. And uh, dude, I wish you the much success on Kickstarter. Hey, I really appreciate it and happy holidays. And uh, it was fun to, uh, you spiced it up indeed. Up next, Rick Seward our expert on all things games. Welcome, Rick, and I'm ready for you to teach me something new about games. DJ Grandpa here. Hello. What do you have to tell us, Rick? I'm dying to know about this alpha. Let's call it the alphabet soup. I'm dying to know. I gotta know because I can't keep all the numbers and all the letters straight. I finally have RPG. I got that down. But what's the rest? Well, the rest might consist of CCGs, and that stands for Collectible Card Games. The game that really launched the collectible card game phenomenon is Magic the Gathering. It was launched in the early 90s, so we're talking about just about 20 years ago now. And that game has given rise to other CCGs, but it's still going strong. Magic the Gathering is an incredible phenomenon that still has tournaments worldwide, very popular tournaments in the U.S., and a lot of imitators, but Magic the Gathering is the launcher of that. Then the RPGs you mentioned, of course, are role-playing games. Dungeons & Dragons, probably the best known of those, and also, again, 25, 30 years ago. I like the party games, but okay, so okay, let's... let's, And we're going to move on to those. We're going to move on to those. I don't have an acronym for you for that one, but uh, board games. Break down into party games, and we love those too good example of a current party game that's popular in our line is reverse charades where an entire team acts out a clue instead of one player giving clues and little hand symbols and those types of things this is a whole team not giving hand symbols but acting as a group so if i gave you mount rushmore four people would stick their heads right in the line and try and look like four presidents sitting on a mountaintop but the whole idea is that it takes the pressure off the single individual, puts it on the team without words, without communication, to act synergistically out the clue. And that's reverse charade. So that's a good example of a party game that's been very popular this past year. Another type of board game that's increasingly popular is a cooperative board game, as opposed to the typical competition that we all have grown up on. By the way, I did just a quick observation there. We used to teach games to young kids because we were curious to see how young you had to be to appreciate certain games, be able to play certain games. And we found in teaching kindergartners... You mean you that, did that with the research for your company, Griffin and Eve? Yeah, we did. We okay. did. Uh, right. Because we, we like to try and identify you know who it is that we're reaching out to. 
But we found more and more that the real young kids, the four-year-olds, the five-year-olds, the pre-kindergartners, they don't naturally want to compete. In fact, if you show them a cooperative game, they're much more likely to get engaged and, and work with each other and cooperate with each other. We start to make these kids competitive by how we introduce subjects in school, how we play games and the other kinds of things, outdoor games, recreational games, as well as board games. But that competition, we inspire that starting at ages six and seven, first grade, second grade, that kind of thing. So cooperative has become an interesting genre much more recently that adults are interested in. We have a game, for instance, called Defenders of the Realm, where you can play it with six people at the same time. They take on roles, but it's not an RPG, mind you. It's uh, on a great big board, and these characters all bring a certain set of personality traits to the game. You have a dwarf, and you have an elf, and you have a barbarian, you have a big physical person, typically, and wizards. And they bring these cooperative skills to the game, and they try and defeat the Dark Lord's minions. Well, the Dark Lord is played by the game itself. So the game has intelligence, and you're all working to defeat the intelligence that's built into the game. Pretty sophisticated stuff, but definitely something that's very popular. Now, are these games kind of like the warmonger type of games? Like, I've seen steampunk games like that, where they, you know, they have these miniature figures all over the board, and they're competing with strategies and stuff like that. And that's almost still another genre, the miniatures, as you appropriately called them. Right. And Warhammer is probably the best example, again, equivalent to Magic the Gathering or Dungeons & Dragons. Warhammer is that war-type emphasis with using miniatures, using painted miniatures. And I know some of the crowdfunding that's gotten the most attention because it's raised a million dollars or two million dollars are some of these miniatures games that uh, have been developed in the last, even the last 12 months that have raised that kind of money on Kickstarter or other crowdfunding. Zombies are a particularly popular type of miniatures game that's done very well in the past year or so on Kickstarter. I asked you to come on the show because you've had roughly 20 successful Kickstarter campaigns. With that being said, I keep getting these emails or or questions about how do I enter into the gaming industry? I want to start my own gaming company. I have this idea. How do I find a graphic artist? How do I do this? I keep referring them to instructables.com because I figured that's a DIY community and there are so many people there who've kind of done it all and who've already done all the thinking for you and and they kind of help you push your ideas along. Is there any guidance that you would give to a first-time gamer? We get similar types of inquiries, actually, that I get directly. We usually get them passed to us through customer service emails. I came to this career, if you will, out of a completely different background. So a lot of it has been do-it-yourself for me personally by hands-on, taking the plunge, and figuring it out. I don't necessarily recommend that to everyone because it takes a lot of time and it does take some capital because raising the money via Kickstarter is certainly a great way to go. And many times you can raise a nice sum of money, but you're still short of what you actually need when you figure out that there's more to doing a game than just the game production. And lots of times you can get a quote these days a lot more easily out of Germany or China. And of course, we do a lot of work in China. But that doesn't mean that you've got a fix on everything that's involved because you obviously have art and you've got graphics and you've got the hard production costs, which might involve various things besides printing. It might involve plastics and molds and and it might involve stones or metal or wood commonly. So you're dealing suddenly with this plethora of factories in China. And sorting out those pieces takes a while. Shipping plays an increasingly bigger role, not only just getting the games from China to you, but then factoring in the cost of shipping them out to clients and that sort of thing. So I can only say that we have helped a number of designers, first-time designers, in getting themselves organized and taking them through Kickstarter We'll do it as a cooperative deal between our company, Eagle and Griffin Games, and first-time designers. We've done this with a number of games. Of those 20, now 20, uh, 20 successful projects that we've done, probably half have been with first-time designers that we've taken through that process. 
And most people find, unless they have a lot more time on their hands than the average person, that they would like to come up with the ideas, and then they'd like to be involved in the process of making decisions about what's the packaging going to look like, what's the graphics, what are they going to consist of. But then they'd rather not put up with all of the other business background, logistical and otherwise, decisions that are uh, involved. So I could just say to you and to uh, your listeners that if someone is interested in pursuing that and working with a company that does nothing but board games, that they should get in touch with Eagle, Griffin, customer service, and we'll explore that possibility with them. If you guys were interested, it would turn into something like a licensing deal? Yeah, a licensing deal. But we like to involve, we really do like to involve our designers in a firsthand kind of way. So it's not, you sell your soul to this company and you never see it again. I work personally with the designers particularly. That's the thing that I like to do the most and end up spending my time doing. Okay. To take their ideas. It starts with something as simple as a set of rules. They send a set of rules. We take a look at it. If we like what the where the rules are going, and uh, if we have some ideas about how we might develop it, we'll get back to the designer and say, yeah, send us a prototype. And we ask that they put together their initial prototype because I think their vision for what this game is going to be is important. And then from there, we'll play it. We have playtest groups consisting of different types of folks, so coming from different backgrounds, from different likes and dislikes as far as games are concerned. And from that, we get a consensus of, yeah, we should pursue this, or no, there's really not quite enough there yet. Okay, let's say I bring, you know, I'm this this neophyte, and I bring this game to you, and I have my prototype and my rules and all of that. How long is it going to take me to get my game to market? I'm like in a rush. I mean, you're interested (laughs) in all... Yeah, yeah, I know that, but that's that's why I have to ask the question. How long is it going to take me to get out there on Kickstarter? Uh, Okay, uh, we can break it down a little. The first thing you're going to do is send a set of rules in. And that set of rules, uh, it'll take us uh, anywhere from a week to a month to find the time for a couple people to read those rules. Because we we want you guys are thorough. I understand. No, I want to know. <laughs> let's cut to the chase. How long is it going to take to get my game on You're Kickstarter? You're going to try and pin me down, huh? Yes. <laughs> I would say before you'd see an active Kickstarter campaign, you're talking six to eight months. And before you'd see a game in publication that you can put on your table and play with your neighbor, you're talking twelve to fourteen months. Thank you for hearing that question. That was nice. Of you. <laughs> And believe me, you would not be the first impatient neophyte to bring that question to us. They're all impatient. That's why I had to say it like that. You you can't you can't get around that one. You know, politics and all, you still can't get around that one. Fair enough. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, I I got some information for the community. You know, they they'd want to know if they brought a game to a gaming company, what could they expect? So, you know, I'm glad you've come on and, and I'm glad you've set the record straight and you 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 looked me straight in the eye and you answered every well, you tried to waver a couple of times, but but, <laughs> but but you tried your best. You you told as much of the truth as you could stand. And I thank you for that. <laughs> of course. Very, very welcome. And that's where you come in. We know you have good ideas. What you may not have is a sturdy box full of the things you need to get those ideas out of your head and onto a board. And we happen to have just such a box. This could be the start of something beautiful. Check out Eagle and Griffin's latest Kickstarter, the Game Designer's Toolkit, only on Kickstarter for the holidays. After that, who knows? Perhaps what starts out as a bunch of pieces in an ugly brown box will become the next hit Eagle or Griffin game. Pretty new box art and all. My name is John Coons, and I'm here to introduce my heirloom chemistry set. In past years, I Grandpa calling H.S. Beagle. Good afternoon, H.M.S. Beagle. This is John. How's it going? Fine. How are you? It's good to hear from you, man. And you know, DJ Grandpa, man, I love science, man. All things science. That's great. So do I. So I'm happy to talk to you, man. I'm very excited about this heirloom chemistry set on Kickstarter, man. It's been about time. There's probably been others, but I'm sure I missed them. But yours looks perfect, man. It has to be the right one at the right time. 
so far it looks like it's doing well. Yes, you're doing incredibly well. You've reached minimum funding, but I don't want to dampen his fundraiser. He's still looking for more money. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So, John, how long long has this been an idea of yours to bring a project like this, you know? Well, since before we opened our retail science store, so I would say from about um, 1999 on. Wow. It took us over a year, well, almost 14 months to get this Kickstarter project off the ground. Why did it take so long? Well, the two main hang-ups were the uh, uh, assistance I needed in finding a suitable maker that I could trust and whose skills I could count on to do the CNC routing on the boxes. Because prior to this, I made all the boxes myself by hand using standard uh, woodworking equipment, but it would take me anywhere from two weeks to a month to make it in my spare time. And there wasn't any way that I could do that and sell them in the numbers that they've been pledged for on Kickstarter at this point. It took me a long time to finally find someone. And I not only found someone who was a skilled woodworker, but he actually was someone that I had met early in my life because my father was a cabinet maker and had done business with his father-in-law. So (laughs) there was a connection there. And the other thing was... um, it took me uh, a long time to get a video made. Yeah, that was something that uh, was new to me, and I finally had a good friend of mine, uh, Charlie Wellborn, who's a local photographer and videographer, and he helped me and for no pay and put together what I think is a very fine video. I rate all the videos, man, and yours is incredible, man. I like it. It, it looks I don't know. I'd like to say it looks authentic or it looks a little rustic, maybe. It has a rustic feel to it. That's what I wanted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it has the kid in it with the, you know, instructions and stuff. And you had that beautiful picture of you and your wife outside HMS Beagle, the store, and all of that. That's way cool, man. I appreciate hearing that. Thank you. Tell me your long and twisted history on the way to chemistry. I grew up in a little little town in Reno County, Kansas called Arlington. It was a farming community, and my family was farmers. My father was a cabinet maker, though. He was one of the few kids that broke away from the farming and uh, did something different. And I've been exposed to woodworking ever since I was able to push a broom and clean the wood shop. By the time I was 12 years old, uh, we had moved to Kansas City, and uh, I got my first uh, chemistry set and my first aquarium. Right. And the two have been inextricably intertwined ever since. I had a company for 37 years that where I developed and manufactured chemicals to keep fishes alive and healthy. Oh. And my products are still on the market, over 150 of them distributed internationally. Wow, uh, man. Did you ever invent oh, yeah, anything? I had patents, and, and uh, most of my products were proprietary. We just didn't bother to patent them because patenting is expensive. But I actually had one really, really good patent that uh, I came up with, and I invented it in my home laboratory. I've had a home lab since I was 12, and I'm, well, let's put it this way, I'm a baby boomer, right. and I still have a home laboratory. Man, you're quite the industrious sort, man. I like, I'm liking all of this, man. This is a great story, man. Well, I've never considered myself industrious. I guess it's not something I just don't consciously pursue, but I, I guess uh, you could say that I am. I, I consider myself a scientist. That's my first love is science. You know, I have a few children <laughs> and a couple dogs, <laughs> um, <laughs> and they're always doing experiments throughout the house, you know, like with plants and seedlings, and we oh, bought yeah, them a microscope great. and... You know, all of that stuff. So I was totally into your chemistry set. I might try and get them one or something. But well, I appreciate hearing that. But yours looks totally cool. I mean, it it even looks, I hope it's not an insult, but it even looks old-fashioned to me. Like, like well, That's kind, kind of know, what I was going for. I wanted it to have that vintage look without right. being in a tin box. Quite honestly, a tin box would have been possible, but beyond my nah, guess. this is cooler, man. This is cooler. I had, prior to opening the our retail science store, I had made a few handmade chemistry sets that I gave to uh, family and friends, and I sold a few of them. And the last one I made, I sold just before we opened our store, and I sold it to another store here in Kansas City that's uh, similar to ours, except they're more of a toy store. Right. And he put it in his store and marked it for $1,250. And 
it was a beautiful set because it was made out of Osage orange and red hardwood with uh, contrasting accents for the inlays. And it was a triptych. It opened two doors open from the front out to the side. And I met a guy five years ago, came in our store. He came in, he stuck his hand out. He said, are you the guy that makes the chemistry sets? And I said, yeah. He said, well, I just wanted to meet you. He said, I'm the guy that bought the one with the red heartwood and Osage orange. And I said, oh, good. Do you use it? He said, no. I replied, why don't you use it? He said, oh, no, no, no. It sits in my living room. It's a piece of art. I was about to say that, but I I wasn't going to go that far. (laughs) I said, well, you know what? It's not designed to be looked at. It's designed to be used. It's designed to be stained and nicked and banged up and... Right. <laughs> you know, that's what it's for. No, some people view everything that has some age on it as an antique. You know, you can't play yeah. with it. You can't touch right. it. You can't whatever. And, and it's hard to give. I guess that's okay for an adult, but it's hard to give a child or anyone something like that and just right. say it's an antique. You can't touch it. You know, right. it goes against everything kid like. Well, I wanted something that was pleasant to look at, but useful and uh, right. utilitarian. I was amazed how you had the, like, the five-second video at the end about the volcano. That yeah. was a very cool touch. <laughs> well, those two chemicals you can't get in modern-day, what I call the corporate and sanitized chemistry sets. Right. That's a very cool demonstration. The thing about it is that orange, bright orange chemical, ammonium dichromate, that's used by schools all over the world for allow kids to demonstrate a volcano but yet you can't buy it in chemistry sets. And to go out and try to find it, schools, of course, can find it because they can buy from chemical supply houses, but individuals, you won't be able to find it as an individual except in a place like ours. Right. I personally package every one of those chemicals, and I make over over 650 different chemicals, and I add new ones all the time. I always like the MacGyver types, man. I always have respect for you guys, <laughs> man, because you could just take, like, little to nothing and somehow make something. I don't know that I'm a MacGyver type, but in the areas that I know about, I think I do pretty well. Can you blow stuff up with it? Does it have any crazy chemicals in it? There are no crazy chemicals, but let me tell you something. I have people that come in, and we think a child by the time they're nine years old, should have their very first chemistry set. Maybe not this one, but at least a beginning chemistry set. And I get two reactions from parents. Oh, that's cool. Or my kid will blow up the house. And I like to tell people, if you've raised a child who is destructive enough that they want to blow up or will try to blow up the house, you don't need a chemistry set because everything they need to blow up the house is under your kitchen cabinet. Oh. Yeah, okay, you got me. See, that's where the MacGyver knowledge comes in. You got me there, too. <laughs> I didn't think they'd blow it up on purpose, though. I, I thought it would be like... No, I understand that. And like with any, you know, any chemical is dangerous if not handled properly. Yeah. I mean, even water is. I mean, I like to tell people you can die of hydrogen monoxide poisoning. It's otherwise known as drowning. Right. And so any chemical, salt, ordinary table salt, ordinary sugar, if not handled properly, can be dangerous. Mm. And you can't get away from chemicals. Chemicals are everywhere. The only thing that isn't a chemical is called a vacuum. (laughs) You even have a science sense of humor. So for anyone out there, man, if you want to look at the coolest chemistry set I've ever seen, go to kickstarter.com and check out the heirloom chemistry set. And if you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com where I will proudly have links to this project, man, because DJ Grandpa always backs science because science is always cool, period. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much, John. And, And please say hello to the wife. I will. All right. Have a good day, sir. You too. Bye. And and please, don't forget about DJ Grandpa's Crip Season 2, now funding on Kickstarter. And I'd also like to thank our first 54 backers. You guys are awesome, dude. I'd like to thank all our guests. I'd also like to thank our listeners. Each week, we couldn't do it without you guys. A special thanks goes out to Trevor Williams and to my mentor, The Mumbler, for providing music to DJ Grandpa's crib. Thanks to Jeffrey Banks, Bertram Zeke, and Zach Samal, our assistant editors. 
Until next week, so say we all. The homepage for DJ Grandpa's crib is djgrandpa.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, DJ Grandpa's Crib, all one word. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Von Rupert. The executive producer of this and all Bedrock Communications podcasts is AF Rufus.